Well, welcome to this event. I'm Robert Wade. I'm a professor of political economy at the Development Studies Institute here at LSE. And I would like to welcome on LSE's behalf, on your behalf, Helen Clark. Um, time is short, so I'll give a very brief introduction. Helen Clark is the most successful New Zealand politician of her generation. She led the New Zealand Labour Party to not one, not two, but three successive electoral victories. She was Prime Minister for that entire period. Um, and then since last April, she has been the administrator of UNDP, UNDP, United Nations Development Program. That is the apex organization of the UN system for development. Uh, the World Bank might question the statement I just made, but um, other than the World Bank, the UNDP is the apex organization. So for the past year, uh, Helen has been uh, steering this uh, large and sprawling UNDP organization, and it is on the basis of that that she's going to speak uh, this afternoon. Just one other point. Uh, particularly relevant for this audience, um, she began her professional career uh, as a lecturer in political studies at the University of Auckland and then uh, went into national politics. So she comes from both the academic and the practical side of uh, our enterprise. Helen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Robert, and thank you for the invitation to come and speak at the school again. I came a couple of times as uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, and I've worked out that I come every year there's a Winter Olympics. I came in 2002, when I'd been in office uh, for about two and a half years, and I spoke on the topic of implementing a progressive agenda in New Zealand after 15 years of neoliberalism. That had its uh, own challenges, of course. And I came back in 2006 uh, and spoke about the subject of modern New Zealand in a, in a changing uh, world. Uh, but now, of course, I come with a, a different hat and on a, on a different uh, topic. And uh, I guess just as the other two topics I set myself on past visits were the kind of topics that can enable you to talk about anything that seems to be most important at the time. Uh, so my topic today, uh, meeting the development challenges of the 21st century, gives me a reasonably broad canvas on uh, which to paint because there are rather a lot of uh, such challenges and they can uh, be quite, uh, quite daunting. Uh, but I guess to, to go back to uh, the beginning of the particular story I want to tell today, uh, ten years ago, I was one of the, the great many uh, heads of government who were persuaded by Kofi Annan to come up to New York to the General Assembly uh, for the Millennium Summit of the United Nations. And uh, with us all there, we had the Millennium Declaration presented to us uh, to sign, and I did sign on behalf of New Zealand, and enshrined in the declaration were the eight Millennium Development uh, Goals. As David Frost reminded me this morning, with 21 targets and another 60 indicators, but we'll just focus on the eight goals for the purposes of uh, a lecture like this. And the uh, eight MDGs, of course, uh, cover well commitment by the international community to uh, reduce poverty and hunger, 
empower women, increase access to education, health care, clean water and sanitation, and forge strong global partnerships for development. Actually, the UN Intellectual History Project, uh, led for a number of years by Sir Richard Jolly and colleagues, does credit the MDGs with being one of a number of great ideas which have emanated from the United Nations or from people working uh, closely uh, with it, ideas which have helped uh, change our world for the, the better. This September in New York there is going to be the 10 years on review summit of the MDGs and the aim is to renew the international commitment of 10 years ago and strive for agreement on how to reach the goal. There's a whole new generation of leaders, uh, of course, who were not uh, around in, in 2000. Those who were around 2000 probably thought uh, 2015 was three political lifetimes away and they wouldn't be back to be accountable for it. Unfortunately, I am in another capacity, so I'm taking a very great interest in the, in the MDGs. And part of the reason for being in Britain right now is that yesterday, uh, DFID uh, held here in London one of a, a series of quite important conferences which are aimed at mobilising support uh, for, a, for a good summit and for some good outcomes uh, for uh, the summit. But, of course, to achieve the MDGs and indeed any other international development goals, and there are a great number, there are uh, one or two challenges to overcome. We have, uh, obviously, the global economic crisis coming on top of the high food and fuel price spikes of two years ago, and the high food prices have never really gone away. Food prices are quite historically high, which when you're a food exporting country like New Zealand, of course, can be quite good news, but if you are a food importing country with many uh, hungry uh, people, is extremely bad news. So these three crises running together uh, have placed a lot of additional pressure on developing uh, countries and on sustaining the progress which was being made on the MDGs. And of course, we can all think of, of other concurrent crises as well. We seem to have been through a spectacular run of catastrophic uh, natural disasters. Some are climate related, others like these uh, terrible earthquakes in Haiti, Chile, uh, Turkey, uh, just in the past week, uh, are not. Then to add to the list of challenges, we have the ongoing conflicts in many uh, countries uh, and of course uh, beyond the, the countries which we recognise as being in a, in a, a state of, of war, civil war, internal conflict, there's also the armed violence which is very, very debilitating of uh, development in uh, a number of countries. And then, well, in a range of countries, uh, governance is not exactly conducive to uh, getting momentum on development uh, either. But before the, the most recent run of crises, at a global level, one can certainly see uh, that there was progress on meeting the Millennium Development Goals, goals like uh, by 2015 reaching universal primary education, not quite fast enough progress at this point to meet the 2015 target, but it is possible. Uh, with concerted effort. The deaths of children under the age of five have been declining steadily uh, worldwide, uh, although progress not yet quite fast enough to reach the uh, MDG, but it could be done. A number of countries, including uh, some of the poorest countries, have been recording impressive results in reducing extreme poverty and hunger. 
and expanding access to clean water and HIV treatment. But of course the progress which was being made even before the crises was uh, somewhat an uneven across and within uh, countries and regions. The MDG global target on reducing the numbers living in poverty, for example, uh, will be achieved uh, because hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in China. But if we took China's uh, figures out of the equation and, and looked at the rest of the developing world, the number of people living in extreme poverty was estimated to have actually increased between 1990 and 2005 by around 36 million. And of course that was before the recession and these other crises came along. On the current trends, uh, several of the MDGs are likely to be missed in many countries and some could miss all of them. The challenges are the most severe in the least developed countries in a number of the small island states, in those vulnerable to natural hazards and in those either in or emerging from conflict. But overall I must say that where we see progress towards the MDGs faltering the most is where the needs of women and girls are not prioritised. MDG 5, for example, which seeks to improve maternal health, calls for a reduction by three quarters in the maternal mortality rate from that of 1990 and for the achievement of universal access to reproductive health. Alas, we are very far short of those targets. Somewhere in the world a woman dies every minute from complications related to pregnancy and childbirth. So on top of the uneven picture of progress on these MDGs, we now have to factor in the impact of the global recession, which will linger in a number of developing countries long after the development world, the developed world has moved on from it. Not that we're moving on particularly fast from it either. I saw a cheer German in the green room at the, the Frost program a few hours ago and said to him, what are you here to talk about? He said, the credit crunch. I said, is it still going? Yes. Uh, you know, thing, things are slow to recover in Western economies too. But in many of the countries that we work in, uh, we see the long-term impacts uh, on individual and on countries' potential when education and health budgets are slashed, jobs are lost, children are pulled out of school, and there's simply not enough food to put on the table. Uh, these are the consequences in countries which have suffered significant drop in revenue and in remittances, and the drop-off in remittances has been a pretty uh, common story apart from uh, those for some countries in Asia. And also the countries we deal with often have very little fiscal space or access to credit lines. They don't have deep pockets or, or the resilience uh, to draw on. A particular concern is that profound economic crisis in vulnerable countries can turn into an humanitarian crisis and in extremis into a security and stability crisis. The consequences then can be rather long-lasting and expensive to address, eventually at much greater cost than well-timed support in the first place would have been. And as I observed at Diffid's conference yesterday, it is always rather more effective to build a fence at the top of a cliff than it is to place an ambulance at the bottom. 
perhaps metaphors about fences at the top of the cliff are particularly New Zealand ones, I don't know, but <laughs> it did get a titter of amusement around the, the Difford uh, conference. War and conflict obviously have uh, lasting negative impacts on human development, destroying lives, livelihoods, communities and infrastructure. And my own organisation, UNDP, works in every crisis zone around the world, from Afghanistan to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, from Liberia to Iraq, working on early recovery, rebuilding livelihoods, uh, trying to support the building of government structures and systems, disarming, demobilising, reintegrating former fighters where that is possible, helping to tackle the scourge of sexual violence against women in conflict zones. And I'll make the obvious point that often a woman's war doesn't end when the war ends because society has been so brutalised and dislocated that uh, that level of violence often uh, tragically carries uh, on. And then we're seeing how the recovery from catastrophic natural disaster can in many ways be as challenging as recovery uh, from conflict. I went to Haiti around four days after the earthquake struck and one will never get out of one's mind that sea of collapsed buildings, concertinaed buildings actually, and the silent vigils being held by people waiting to see if their loved ones uh, would emerge alive from the ruins. So we've been active in there on what is called early recovery, uh, basically with a job creation uh, program because we, we think that in, in principle there is a dignity in people being able to earn their money rather than standing passively at the uh, end of a queue uh, for food and supplies. And uh, when you can create jobs which are doing something extremely useful like helping clear the rubble and sort what might be able to be used again, that, that's positive. And with enough support, we could uh, create several hundred thousand jobs in the course of the year to help people get back on their feet and uh, start that long road uh, back to some kind of uh, recovery. Then there's the challenge of getting adequate resources for development, especially in tough times. And uh, I would observe that while money isn't everything, it, it usually does help. Uh, we need strong global partnerships for development, uh, especially at this time when the developing countries have been disproportionately badly affected by years of crises. And we've seen many pledges made to increase the funding for development. When the G8 met at Glen Eagles in 2005, it pledged to double aid to developing countries uh, by 2010 this year compared to 2004 levels. And within that it pledged to double the aid to Africa in the same time frame. Uh, that latter part of the pledge is a long, long way short of uh, delivery. And now we see the donor countries themselves under considerable fiscal stress with few guarantees that their development budgets will be maintained as they exit from their stimulus packages. Uh, there are, of course, many donors which to this point have maintained their commitments, and that's uh, you know, wonderful from the point of view of an organisation like our own, which is advocating for development. And that includes Britain, where both major political parties have committed uh, to protecting official development assistance from uh, future budget cuts. But I think the most likely source of new funding for development 
will be the climate finance which stems from a new climate agreement. When it is reached, I will be optimistic and say when it is reached, uh, it's clearly an extremely difficult uh, uh, process. The least developed and low income countries in particular do need significant support above and beyond existing ODA to meet the costs of adaptation to climate change, let alone to embark on a low carbon uh, development uh, path. Our organisation has built up quite a substantial uh, work program on both adaptation and mitigation. Uh, we see climate change as not only obviously a critical environmental challenge, but also as a very serious challenge to development. And uh, I'm strongly of the view that our world will never sustainably reduce poverty if we destroy the ecosystems of the only planet uh, we have to live on. In meeting these development challenges, though, I would observe that we have much broader global partnerships to draw on than we had in the past. While the north to south flows of ODA are still very important, we're also witnessing the exponential growth of south-south cooperation and of the very large philanthropic uh, initiatives alongside dynamic civil society participation and somewhat more interest from the private sector and development. On the South-South cooperation, if we look at the early 1960s, the share of global GDP, which was accounted for by low and middle income countries, stood at around 15%. It's now estimated at somewhere around 25%. And the rise of the mega emerging economies in particular and their growing geopolitical importance is putting a lot of weight behind South-South cooperation. More and more of the expertise and the funding which developing countries need is likely to come from within the global South itself in the future. And I believe that the UN development system is very well placed to facilitate the transfer of knowledge and expertise across the South. And UNDP, with a presence in 166 countries through a network of 135 country offices, we see facilitating South-South cooperation as central to what we do, as we do working with philanthropic funds, civil society organisations, and alongside those in the private sector who are prepared to pursue inclusive business strategies which can help deliver for development. Some research was commissioned by UNDP before I arrived which suggests that deliberately including the poor and core business strategies will work both for business and for development. And uh, there are a number of uh, quite positive examples uh, where we've seen uh, that, that happen. Uh, having said that, of course, I will make a, a point that's important to me, which is I don't see the workings of the market or economic growth on its own uh, ever ending poverty. I'm firmly of the view that markets do not deliver either equity or justice, nor it is, is it their function. They deliver winners and losers. The public goods we seek, uh, equity, justice, fairness, uh, investment in the social sectors, these come as the outcome of deliberate public policy, which ensures that economic progress is harnessed to social progress. 
As I've spoken at LSE in the past, I will now anticipate a question that some might ask, which is, what is the biggest difference you've found between the context you worked in before and the one you find yourself in now? I think one of the biggest differences is in the capacity to get a job done. Because in a developed country, one expects to see results flowing from well-designed policies and delivery systems. Of course, they're not always well-designed in developed countries either, but if they are well-designed, one expects then to see a, a rollout and a, an adequate delivery system. In many developing countries, there are often very good strategies and very good policies and plans, but less often the capacity to put them into place. And that means that a major task for all of us in development is to support the building of capacity to deliver. Another difference which is stark to me lies in the level of resilience to external shocks. I see in many ways the essence of development as being about building resilience to the shocks which will inevitably come along, whether they be the low points of the economic cycle or natural disasters. So while this is not the easiest of times uh, to be on a development mission, I don't think it's a time for despair either. I think tough times do encourage fresh thinking and innovation. And I do believe that there is abundant evidence of development best practice and of results achieved with modest investments which have made a huge difference in moving towards the MDGs and other development goals. Next week, the Secretary-General will launch his report on the MDGs to the General Assembly. It's a report entitled Keeping the Promise, a forward-looking review to promote an agreed action agenda to achieve the MDGs by 2015. UNDP has been involved in preparing it, and we hope it will get all the stakeholders thinking about what more they could do to meet the goals. We have a number of other initiatives uh, preparing for the September summit on the MDGs. Uh, firstly, and uh, greatly supported by uh, DFID, uh, we've been able to get uh, quite a lot of support to work on 30 in-depth uh, country reports uh, on the MDG achievement. The idea being to highlight the advances which have been made, uh, draw lessons from uh, the successes and be able to place strong empirical country-based evidence before the September summit of what works, and then uh, hopefully be able to spread those lessons and experiences more widely. We're also leading the preparation of an international assessment of what it will take to achieve the MDGs. Last year, the G8 leaders meeting at L'Aquila in Italy called for such an assessment, and the report we're preparing <coughs> will be ready for this year's G8 meeting in Canada in June. Then, together with the other organisations in the UN Development Group, we're pulling together what we're calling an MDG Breakthrough Strategy, which will be informed by the in-depth country reports and by the international assessment. And the aim is to have an acceleration framework to support countries identifying what is holding back MDG progress for them, and then to address those constraints, drawing on proven interventions, best practice, and lessons learned. But the bottom line is, we do think the MDGs are achievable.
that progress can be accelerated if the evidence of what works is applied to the task. And the aim of the September summit must be to build a consensus around the kinds of actions required to meet the goals by 2015. In that context, I also offer the following observations of what else is helpful in meeting <coughs> development challenges. Lasting development results do call for very strong national leadership and ownership, where developing countries drive their own solutions. No amount of official development assistance can substitute for national leadership and action. Secondly, that development will thrive where there is wise leadership which invests in people, in infrastructure and institutions. And it will thrive especially where domestic resources are allocated effectively and where governments are responsive, transparent and accountable. Thirdly, for official development assistance to be effective, I do think it needs to be much more catalytic in supporting developing countries to access the very best strategic and policy advice possible and to build a capacity to deliver. A small project approach to development by partners does not support the systemic and transformational change to which developing countries aspire. I've just come in recent days from India where UNDP has helped to design and implement the world's largest job creation program under India's National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Uh, that program reaches 46 million households and it is having a real impact on poverty reduction. That's what I call scale up for a relatively modest investment to be able to have the privilege of supporting a country to roll out something like that on a national scale, reaching 46 million households, multiply that by people per household, it can have a very, very considerable impact on poverty reduction. My fourth point, that getting some breakthroughs on these elusive international negotiations around trade and climate would be enormously helpful for developing countries uh, in making the rules around both uh, more just and fair. And a fifth point to repeat, I do think the most likely substantial new source of finance for developing countries will be climate finance, and the sooner an agreement is reached which can release those flows beyond the start of $30 billion promised in Copenhagen, the better, as many of the least developed and low-income countries simply cannot cover the substantial adaptation and mitigation costs which they face. But perhaps my most important point is that, in my view, the most critical development investments we can make with the greatest multiplier effects will be those we make in women and in girls. We cannot expect to make breakthroughs, accelerate progress and achieve development goals if 50% of the population continues to miss out on so much. Providing women with just one extra year's schooling will mean that her children will be less likely to die in infancy or suffer from illness or hunger. Meeting a woman's needs for sexual and reproductive health services will increase her chances of finishing her education and breaking out of poverty. Enabling women to hold land title and to inherit gives them the status in their family and their community and the economic base from which to transform their own and their children's prospects. 
in many ways the breakthrough strategy on the MDGs could be as simple as investing in and empowering women. Earlier this week in Delhi, I launched UNDP's Asia-Pacific Human Development Report on Gender. It calls for comprehensive economic, political and legal reform and the enforcement of existing laws to empower women. Of course, the need for action on that scale is not confined to the Asia-Pacific. And it was very exciting to be in India on Tuesday when one house of its parliament passed by a huge majority a bill to reserve one-third of parliament's seats for women. That represents a huge step forward in giving women the voice they need in decision-making, which is just so critical for women's needs getting the attention they deserve. My own experience in my own country is that it is not until you get a critical mass of women in your decision-making structures that you actually start to move policies in the areas that really matter. So, in summary, meeting these development challenges in the 21st century uh, does require some business unusual. Uh, certainly, we need all stakeholders pulling in the same direction. This is not a time for turf wars or duplication of effort. As I often say, there's more than enough work for all of us to do. Uh, but I'm an optimist that with sufficient and predictable resources, with solid and innovative <coughs> partnerships, with strong leadership and action in developed and developing countries alike, we can accelerate progress. And meeting development challenges this century demands nothing less. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to abuse my chairman's position by asking the first question. Um, one of the main themes you made was that the development, Millennium Development Goals are achievable. Um, and you also pointed out that UNDP works across a very large number of countries, 140 or so countries. 66. Um, and so what I would like to ask you is whether you are getting support from the people who fund UNDP, I mean the states that fund UNDP, for this continued broad coverage of the development problem, or are these uh, donors, many of whom are in circumstances of great fiscal stringency themselves, trying to get you and the UN development effort more generally focused on a much narrower range of fragile states on the assumption that countries like India and so on uh, don't need UN development assistance. It's only the ones that, as you put it, are about to fall off the cliff that um, your efforts should be focused on. It, do you see a change in the, their direction of concern happening, or do you not? Yes, it's fair to say we are seeing a, a narrowing of donor interest uh, to uh, a much smaller group of countries, uh, particularly the so-called crisis uh, countries, uh, so-called fragile states. Uh, but, of course, we have a universal mandate, and our attitude is that as long as a developing country wants us, we will stay. As long as a developing country says, you, UNDP, you, the UN development system can add value to what we do, 
we will stay. Uh, but it does, uh, it does get increasingly difficult to fund the universal uh, presence because generally the core funding uh, for the UN development agencies is not large. A lot of the funding has to be mobilised programme by programme, country by country, and the, the money is increasingly going to the, uh, the countries which are in huge difficulties. But you know, I make the point that if one is to focus in exclusively on the countries and, and the huge difficulty, and if you neglect the, the currently stable but still with some issues, uh, you may end up with a lot more fragile countries. And uh, you know, I've sort of made a, a broad generalisation. Uh, I'd observe that on a continent like uh, Latin America, which you know, perhaps people saw as having overcome a democratic deficit, having had years of growth, you know, things on the up and up, have a few crises come along, a recession, uh, you, you're back into a different ball game where the very stark inequalities on a continent which has gross inequalities uh, lay bare. Uh, there's quite extreme political polarisation in, in a number of countries, uh, getting to tip over point in a country like uh, uh, Honduras in the, in the past year. And then you have a, a rising problem of armed violence in a number of the societies, which is extremely debilitating to development. Actually, Norway is just taking up this issue of armed violence as a constraint on development with a conference uh, we're working on to support them with in April. And they're hoping perhaps to try and move in the direction of a convention uh, in some way which might deal uh, with these issues. And when Norway is seized of the importance of an issue, as you know, it will drive it all the way through to a convention. So it's good to be working with them on it. But, yep, there's still a wide range of issues out there uh, across a wide range of countries still seeking our support, but not quite as easy to mobilise funding for the broad mandate as it used to be. And can I make one last point? Not a single cent that goes into agencies like UNDP or UNICEF or World Food Programme uh, or UN Population Fund comes from assessed contributions or taxes on member states by the UN. Every single cent uh, has to be raised. And uh, that's, of course, an ongoing challenge. And raised on conditions, with mm. conditions. Mm. Okay, we have something like uh, 20 minutes um, for questions. And mm. I suggest that you just uh, choose mm. who you would like to <laughs> ask. After, after what I said on gender equality, I'm going yes. to the front row. <laughs> Thank you. I noticed that in your talks and list of challenges, religion was not included. Um, does it come into the equation in your work? Um, do uh, religion leaders support your efforts? Because obviously women and children are very exposed to uh, religion in poor countries. Um, no, I, I didn't touch on it, uh, but I have, um, in my previous capacity, had um, quite a lot to do with fostering uh, support and interest in initiatives like the Alliance of Civilizations, which I th think was a wonderful initiative from Spain and Turkey, and also the uh, Asia-Pacific uh, Regional Interfaith Dialogue. And I always think I'm the perfect person to support such dialogues because I have no faith whatsoever myself, <laughs> and no religious faith whatsoever myself. Uh, but as uh, former Norwegian Prime Minister once said to me, uh, when we look at a, a number of, of conflicts around the world, 
um, some interpretation of religion may well be you know, uh, exacerbating the problem, but in the same way, religion has to be part of the solution. Uh, so I think it, it's, it's very important to be uh, reaching out to the faiths um, who have such leadership roles uh, to billions of adherents uh, collectively. There was a major event that UNDP uh, got in behind at Windsor Castle last year where I think the Queen herself took part, uh, where faith leaders from around the world were brought together on climate change. Uh, in fact, one of our people who went said he found enormously more satisfying than dealing with political leaders. <laughs> he found the religious leaders rather more serious <laughs> um, and uh, principled in, in many ways. But um, Also, I know that in the work that UN Population Fund does, uh, they work very hard to uh, relate to a wide range of faiths again, to work with the faiths on, on some of the issues which... Uh, constrain choices for women. So you know, you're right to raise the issue uh, that uh, it's, it's important in the, the dialogues we have and the partnerships we seek to be uh, cognizance of the importance of the faith communities. Professor uh, Wade raised the question of whether there's a narrowing of interest from a um, geographic, I, I suppose, in terms of states. But I wanted to ask whether you also find if there was narrowing of interest amongst the different goals. So are donors more interested in certain goals and or less? Is there such a mm. differentiation? The question was, are donors um, narrowing their interest within the goals? Are they more interested in some rather than others? Um, I, think, I think now only in a constructive way. I think donors are really now looking at the goals where there's just not enough traction. I mean, maternal health is, you know, just stands out as the one that's struggling so hard. So we're likely, I think, to see quite a, quite a push on that. I know the Secretary-General has a meeting coming up in the next few weeks where he's trying to focus more attention uh, on that goal in particular, and I think I'm right in recalling at the DFID conference yesterday the British government was also <coughs> announcing some new initiatives in, in these areas. But as I say, I, th I think if we take a, a very clear you know, gender perspective on the MDGs, uh, and come back to these basic issues of women's voice and participation and rights, uh, that in a way will be the breakthrough because w we struggle where women just aren't getting, getting the chance to you know, have their babies in a, a safe environment, to have access to education, have an influence on decision-making and prioritising budgets and, and issues and, and so on. So I, I think if, if there is a, a kind of focusing of interest, it's more on, well, where do we really need to make some more, some more gains? Yeah. Up the back. Is it just a question about uh, UNDP and partnerships? And if I can take as an example the Global Fund against um, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Um, in view of its relative success, would you be in favour of it being incrementally extended, first of all, to cover hepatitis C, which is now fast becoming um, actually a major rival to AIDS, tragically, in terms of its pandemic, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere and in Asia? 
Um, I mean, that is a crucial uh, illness disease uh, with far less uh, antiretroviral and combination therapies than AIDS. It's potentially actually a greater threat to humanity in the next 30, 40 years. So uh, with that example, and possibly extending the global fund ultimately actually into a global health fund. On, on the Global Fund, uh, UNDP is quite a substantial implementing partner for it. We have a lot of experience with the fund because the fund likes to know that money will go to the purpose for which appropriated and not all countries have systems that can guarantee that. So if I go, for example, to Democratic Republic of Congo, I'll find that uh, UNDP is actually in charge of administering huge sums of money uh, for the rollout of uh, HIV, antiretrovirals, etc. But as to uh, the specific question, well, I think th there's pros and cons of, of vertical funds, in my opinion. Uh, they obviously get a, a very concerted um, focus on particularly deadly and debilitating diseases, and I completely agree with you that hepatitis C uh, is, is such, a, is, is such a, a debilitating disease. But I do have concerns that unless the process of focusing on these specific conditions also reinforces the building of adequate uh, public and primary health care systems, then we will end up too much as the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff again. And, and that what uh, many countries are really crying out for is better capacity uh, in their primary care and, and, and public health promotion. Uh, systems. So uh, obviously a global fund with a, a particular appeal for support around diseases which you know, concern all of us and have such a huge impact on, on uh, such large numbers of people. Uh, there's a lot of good things to be said but I, I really do stress that for me, and I come from a background of having once been a health minister and taking a great interest in these issues, it's the building of the basic capacity in country for primary health systems which most, which most concerns me. Along the road there. Um, I work for a small NGO that has some funds to, to give to the, uh, to the Global South. Um, you talked a bit about South-South partnerships being uh, sort of a, a, a potential, already happening more, but a potential in the future. I just wanted you to expand upon that. Um, how, how will those South-South partnerships um, develop? And a bit more about what's happening now as well. Mm. Well, it's, it's a broad concept, and it's certainly more than uh, the mega emerging economies uh, coming forward as very substantial providers of concessional loan finance, uh, technical assistance, uh, education, etc. These mega economies are also, of course, uh, uh, often quite important uh, direct investors uh, into developing countries. The investments of China and Africa are well known. Uh, India's investments uh, in Africa are, are growing. Uh, so there's that sort of whole role of, the, of these, these mega emerging economies and their geopolitical projection, which is uh, you know, part, of, part of the story, I think, in South-South, as, as well as a, 
you know, also an, an underlying ethos, and I, I don't want to be naive about this, but an underlying ethos of solidarity uh, with developing countries. I mean, China's development cooperation goes back to the 1950s when Chairman Mao said, uh, we in China uh, have a duty to help uh, other oppressed peoples rise from the colonial shackles and chains. I mean, it came from that, that kind of motivation uh, and has grown to be very, very large. But uh, more generally, I think South-South cooperation refers to uh, the sharing of experiences and knowledge across the South, and in that uh, we find that uh, the least developed countries are very keen to be part of it. They say, look, you know, we've got experiences that we think are valid. You know, we want to be able to uh, have others know about them and share them. And I think that's where an agency like ours, which is so well networked, can be, can be quite, uh, quite helpful. But uh, it, it's taking many forms. I mean, Uruguay, for example, is helping Rwanda roll out uh, laptops and schools programs. There's uh, some wonderful examples. India, uh, we've been supporting India roll out uh, a solar energy program in Guinea-Bissau. There's, there's just a, a lot of flowers blooming uh, in this area. It's not at this moment producing large flows of, of anything like ODA. It tends, uh, the grant side of it is rather smaller, uh, but over time I think that, that that will grow as well. It does have its own paradigm. Uh, the South-South cooperation countries do not subscribe uh, to the, the DAC uh, set of principles, Paris uh, agenda, aid effectiveness, etc. Not that they want their aid to be ineffective, uh, but they, uh, they don't, they don't uh, sign up to that paradigm. They, they have their own, which they see as being based on uh, principles of uh, solidarity and mutual benefit. Um, you mentioned gender inequality, and I noticed that this, oh, last week I think it was, the UK government announced a peer in the House of Lords specifically who's dedicated at looking at violence against women internationally. Um, which I think is a big step forward. But also, there's uh, been talk about a new UN gender agency, and I wondered how you'd mm. be working with them mm. to address some of the mm. continuing problems. Just to clarify, what did you say? The UK government announced what? Um, a, a peer in the House of Lords with specific responsibility for looking at violence against women internationally. Mm. Uh -huh. So rather than just in the UK. I think they're concentrating on things like trafficking, yeah, and uh, you might also note that the UN Secretary General just in recent weeks has announced uh, the former Vice President of the European Commission, Margot Wallström, as the first Under Secretary General with a focus on sexual violence and, and conflict, and that's a very, very important appointment. Uh, but you're right, there is due to be another Under Secretary General appointed to uh, preside over the new gender entity which doesn't yet have a name because you can't call it the UN gender entity can you that doesn't sound very evocative um, and let, I mean let's call a spade a spade it will be about promoting the equality of women uh, so we, we need a name that will somehow reflect that uh, the new entity uh, is being debated around the corridors in New York at the moment a lot of work has been done on a working party uh, under the Deputy Secretary-General, who is a woman, and it's a part of a, a bundle of changes under a sort of program of reform called system-wide coherence, ghastly phrase, 
the gender entities is probably slightly held up by uh, less agreement around some of the other issues uh, in this agenda. But the Secretary General would be very keen to be able to announce the new uh, entity and make the new appointment before the MDG summit because of the, you know, just the incredible importance of the, the gender focus on achieving the, the MDGs. Kira Helen, um, one, you've talked about maternal mortality as one of the most lagging sectors, but you haven't touched on sanitation, which is also mm. one of the most lagging MDG sectors mm. and um, cuts across all of the MDGs, in particular health and education, mm. and also has huge impact on women and children. Um, yet governments and agencies don't tend to give it sufficient uh, attention. And you talk of building the fence at the top of the cliff. And so I have two questions for you. Um, what will the UNDP do to champion this issue of sanitation and ensure that the MDGs aren't undermined due to this neglected sector? Mm. And also, will the UNDP support agencies like WaterAid in ensuring that water and sanitation get the priority necessary at the first ever high-level meeting on water and sanitation um, in Washington this April? Mm. Thank you. Mm. Well, well, you're right. I mean, progress on the sanitation goal is also woeful and it's important for all the reasons uh, uh, which you've mentioned. Uh, obviously, our agency doesn't have a, a specialised function on, on sanitation. That, that's uh, more, I guess, uh, uh, WHO and, and, and others. But because UNDP is, is acknowledged as the lead agency in the UN development system, we have a duty, a responsibility uh, to advocate for all the goals and be supportive uh, of all the mandates of others in, in working on that. So obviously we're strongly, uh, strongly supportive, uh, even though it's not a specialised uh, function. I'm, I'm not myself in, involved in the, the conference that you mentioned, but uh, you know, clearly clean water and sanitation are just so, so basic to development and we mustn't, mustn't take the focus off them. Down here, um, one, two, three, four, five rows in the front. Thank you. Um, my question is, how do you see the role of the middle-income countries in terms of, of development in, in the world and the challenges they have, they have now, um, and how the UNDP plans to address their needs and since there is a change in the paradigm of a developed world helping a developing world. Mm -hmm. And also because these are countries that uh, were, have been many improvements regarding the MDGs. Thank you. Mm. Well, of course, the middle income classification uh, covers a very, very wide span of countries. Uh, uh, and you know, the, the definition, of course, seems to be largely based on GDP, so you can have a commodity boom and the poorest country can end up being classified as middle income and, and then gets less support from the donor community. I mean, Papua New Guinea is on the verge of becoming middle income, but is not on course to meet a single uh, Millennium Development Goal. Uh, our resident reps in the, in the Caribbean uh, tear their hair up because they're in middle income or so-called net contributing countries, and yet uh, 
that can so often be uh, distorted by the presence of an offshore tax haven <laughs> and the, the ordinary people are living with three parts of nothing. Uh, so you know, that, that's all a, all a worry. Uh, but um, I suppose uh, more the, if, if we're thinking of the kind of middle income country like, like say Chile, which is probably on the verge of becoming net, net contributing country and has just gone into OECD. But uh, you know, Chile still has development needs. Uh, Chile asks us, for example, to work with them on issues of gender. Uh, issues of inequality to identify you know, where within Chile things aren't going so well and, and what sort of policies uh, would be appropriate to, to boost um, uh, more e equality of opportunity, uh, if you like. Uh, so you know, while on paper middle-income countries are quite better off, in, in practice there are still a lot of development issues for organisations like ours to, uh, to be involved with. Uh, Again, the, the, the middle-income country, which is more genuinely middle-income, I could put it that way, like, like the Brazils, the Chiles, and so on, uh, they, they're going to be very important in South-South cooperation. And a number of them uh, are approaching UNDP now to say, could you give us some bit of advice, support, work with us on uh, our development of cooperation programs because we're new to this and you've been in the field a long time. We're very happy to do that. Uh, I think you will see us uh, partnering a lot more in future with uh, uh, the South-South uh, cooperation. Uh, the, the South countries will, will want to probably leverage off our presence as the Northern donors long have. Uh, so it's just becoming a much more diverse scene and I, I think this is positive. I think it's very positive. Mm. I think we have one more question. We'll have to go to a woman, so there we are. <laughs> In the middle here. Right. Yes. Hi. Um, before I ask my question, I just want to first say, as a Chinese New Zealander, after I've come to London, you're the first Kiwi voice I've heard. It feels very heartwarming, so I just thought I wanted you to... <laughs> um, my question is, um, in the current financial crisis, uh, many of the most developed countries find it uh, financially difficult to support their own economies. So in such a time, how do you ensure that, um, you, that the UNDP have their continued financial support? Mm -hmm. And also, my second question is, what role do you see students have um, in this process of development and helping um, tackle development challenges? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. I mean, the you know the very time when developing countries' needs are the greatest, the developed countries are under a lot of budget pressure, and uh, by and large, the people who fund the UN agencies like ourselves, UNICEF, Population Fund, you know, they've hung in with us. But we are concerned about the second round effects of the recession when countries begin to exit us, exit from these stimulus packages and uh, maybe won't uh, curtain off uh, ODA from that. But I suppose uh, you know, the, there's, there's, there's a couple of ways in which countries could look at uh, development assistance. One is the philanthropic, you know, the moral duty to, you know, if my neighbour's poor, I'm poor too, uh, you know, duty to do something. But th there's another aspect to 
the older days that of my neighbours poor, I'm poor too, and that is uh, that, that poverty, uh, disease, instability and security do not stay behind borders. We live in a very interdependent world. Uh, so uh, if we want to live with those huge contradictions, it will constantly undermine, uh, frankly, uh, the way of life uh, those in developed countries uh, lead. Uh, so, you know, far better uh, to act as the good neighbour and uh, try and work uh, preventively, uh, proactively, uh, and, and with a good motive uh, for development. So, you know, w one has to be optimistic that even though times are tough for developed countries as well, uh, that there will be more like Britain, where the political parties say we're curtaining off development assistance from. Uh, the cuts that we're making, because uh, while we might have problems here in our country, uh, the truth is that other people's problems are a great deal worse. Okay, I'll leave you uh, with just one final thought. That there is, and this comes directly out of what Helen said, there is a real tension, which is worth watching over the next several months, between Western governments saying we are 100% committed to the Millennium Development Goals on the one hand, and on the other hand, pushing UN and other organizations to focus just narrowly on crisis states and on Africa, as though the rest of the world doesn't have problems. We're going to see this tension played out in big time over the next uh, several months leading up to the Millennium Development Goal Summit. So um, thank you very much for an interesting, uh, stimulating talk. <laughs>